The choices we make in this life speak volumes to the world about how we live our life. In fact, the choices we make speak louder than words that come out of our mouth. When the world wants to assess our lives, it looks not often at our words, it looks at the choices we make. Whenever I eat out at a restaurant, and I do that often, there is one question that I dread, and that is that moment when the waiter asks, Sir, what would you like to drink? I know in my mind I need to answer water. I know I need to drink more water. Water is good for me. Water contains no calories. In fact, there are no bad effects to water. You can drink as much as you want. In life, it is the sustainer of all life. But I want a Coke. And in my mind, I justify that there is water in Coke. Coke tastes better, simply tastes better. The sweet and sugary carbonated Coke is sure to complement my food really well, all food in fact, because it helps, in my mind, I think, the digestive process. I know that water is good for me, but you know, it's always there. I can get it anytime. I can always get it at home. But I can't always get Coke because it's banned in our house by my wife. And look at Coke. It has such a nice red can. And if you remember the marketing from last year, sometimes that can has your name on it. In fact, it's calling to you for you to drink it. I know it may not be good for me. In fact, I know in my head what all that sugar does to my body. But what do I order? I order a Coke. And somehow it makes me feel so good. I can always get life-sustaining water another time. I made a choice to choose what is bad for me instead of what is good for me because somehow I would rather have a few moments of great satisfaction and then suffer later instead of getting what is best for me now. And in this illustration, if water represents the good things of God and Coke represents the temptations of the world, you and I certainly know how easy it is to fall into sin's temptation. We are given a choice every day to choose the good things of God, to choose the best for us now, but we often choose the temporary goodness of the temptations of this world. So what is it that you choose? Because what you choose speaks louder than words. This morning, we continue our sermon series in the book of James. And in this sermon series entitled Louder Than Words, we take a look at actions that evidence real faith. We're looking at actions in our lives that will evidence the real faith we have in Jesus Christ. And how do we do so? We do so by rejecting sin's temptations. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. How in the rejection of sin's temptations do we allow that action to speak louder than words? If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of James, 
James chapter 1 as we take a look at verses 12 to 19. The book of James, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament towards the back. James chapter 1, we're going to be studying verses 12 to 19 this morning. How do we reject sin's temptations in order for us to live lives that speak louder than words for Jesus Christ? Here in this section, verse 12, James begins with a blessing. Look with me. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This section begins with a blessing for those who do not yield to temptation, the temptation in that context to depart from God in view of the trials that they were going through, and we talked about that last week. James was writing to a group of Christians who were of Jewish descent who were undergoing some sort of persecution or trials. And they, in that context, were under the temptation of departing from God and choosing the ways of the world, thinking somehow that if they made that choice, their trials would be lessened. And yet the Bible tells us in verse 12, there is a blessing for those who do not yield to temptation, who reject all forms of temptation, even the offers of temptation. By doing so, it will show through actions that they love God. You see, those who love God will show through their actions that they love God more than the things of the world by rejecting sin's temptation. And God who loves those people will in turn give a reward. Verse 12 tells us there is a prize for those who love God through the rejection of temptation, and that is the ultimate prize of a crown of life. And we are taking notes, that's number one. The ultimate price, the ultimate prize of rejecting temptation, number one, is the crown of life. The ultimate prize for rejecting temptation, the crown of life. When does this happen contextually? This occurs at the end of one's life. When the Bible tells us in verse 12, when we are approved, when we are able to enter into all of the blessings of the life after this. What does that mean? That means that everyone who enters into heaven, who has placed their trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, they will also enter into their rewards. That is what we call the biblical doctrine of eternal rewards. Some of us have the notion that as long as we get into heaven, everything must be fair. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches us that when we go to heaven, some will be rewarded and some will not. You see, we have this false notion that somehow everything has to be fair because if things are not fair in heaven, then we're going to compare and we're going to be jealous and there can't be comparison and there can't be jealousy in heaven because it's heaven. So then everyone gets the same thing. If you believe that, then you are not reading the Bible. The Bible is very clear. Those who live their lives for the Lord here on this earth will be rewarded. They will enter into the rewards when they enter into heaven. And it's wonderful to think out because it challenges us to live for Him in this life, knowing that we're living for the ultimate price, 
when we reject what the world has to offer for something that is better, the crown of life. I was trying to think of how to put this into an illustration so that you can understand. And I thought of one, and of course it always centers around food. Uh, the Bible tells us very clearly in the book of Isaiah that when we enter into heaven, we will eat, and we will eat meat. Now, if you're a connoisseur of meat, you know that there are different levels of meat, especially when it comes to beef. There is the Filipino beef. It's pretty on the low end, no offense to the farmers uh, or the cattle ranchers here. Uh, you've got your Filipino meat. It's often chewy. Um, and then, you know, you have your, on the high-end spectrum, you have your Kobe beef. The beef marbled with fat just simply melts in your mouth. And kind of in between, you've got your Australian beef and your American beef. So all of us who enter into heaven will eat meat. We'll eat good meat. Maybe all of us eat Filipino meat. Meat from the Philippines. But for some who has lived their life faithfully for Jesus Christ, for the rest of all eternity, when meat is served, they get Kobe beef. For all eternity, imagine that. That is heaven. Forever. Every time they serve meat in heaven, it's Kobe beef for you, for those who have served faithfully. You who have not lived faithfully will be eating Filipino meat for all eternity. Is that fair? It may not be fair for you now, but the reality is that's exactly how it works. Now, I'm not sure exactly if beef is the context by which God is talking about here, but the Bible simply tells us that what God has prepared for those who love Him, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has prepared for those who love Him. That's what the Bible says. God has prepared for those who reject sin's temptation something better. He has prepared for them the crown of life. And the crown of life is perhaps not a literal crown, but more metaphorical. It represents the fullness of life, a life that is even better than this. So those who persevere under trial and reject the things of the world today, they will not be left holding the bag. They will not get the short end of the stick. They will receive life and they will receive it abundantly. They will live out heaven's glories in its true fullness because we're always playing the game of worth. We're wondering, is it worth rejecting sin's temptation and the temporary blessings it offers now versus that which I'm going to get if I believe in the Bible and believe what God is in store for me? Now, I've asked a question in my own mind. How, how come the Bible doesn't tell us all the wonderful things we'll receive if we live a life faithful to Him? I think in many ways God wants to keep it a surprise, but most of us don't like surprises. We want to know. We want to know now to see if it's worth living, but I want you to think about this. This is the same God who promises these things is the very same God who created the beauty of this universe. This is the same God who created all the food in this world. This is the same God who created the pleasure of intimacy in marriage and how wonderful that is. 
This is the God who created all of our wonderful desires and appetites. And this is the God who promises us that when you get to heaven, if you live a life faithful to me, I will promise you something even better. I want you to think about that. So that's why James begins with this blessing to tell us that it is worth it to reject sin's temptation because of something so much better than what is being offered currently. Now, in verse 13 to 15, James talks about the source of temptation. Look with me, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. James wants it to be made abundantly clear that even though God allows trials and temptations to enter into our life, God is not the source of temptation. God is not the author of sin or evil. The very nature of a holy God means He can have nothing to do with sin. And therefore, if He can have nothing to do with sin, then He cannot be the source of sin's temptation. And why does James have to tell us this? Because perhaps in some convoluted thinking, some people may believe that because God allows it to happen in our lives, that maybe He has a hand in it. And because He has a hand in it, then therefore maybe it's allowable. Maybe God will understand if I occasionally fall into sin's temptation. I can't be fully at fault if somehow God is a part in it. And James wants to make it absolutely theologically clear, God is not involved in the temptation process. He is not liable. Then therefore, what is the source? Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by, note this, his own desires and enticed. Instead of blaming God as being the source of temptation, it is our own sinful desires that are the sources of our temptation. Therefore, it is our responsibility and it is our fault when we fall into temptation. And if you're taking notes, here's number two. The source of temptation, man's sinful desires. The source of temptation is man's sinful desire. In the Greek, the word desire is epithemia, which has to do with our selfish, illicit desire, that which we cannot have. A desire which is similar to being covetous of something a desiring of something that is not yours, another man's wife, another person's husband, another life, someone else's money, someone else's car, someone else's clothes, someone else's bags. Each one is tempted, verse 14, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Why does God allow our desires 
to make the choices in our lives. Because God is not an over-protective father who never allows us any responsibilities or have any choices. Here we are always clamoring for God to get out of our business, to let us make our own choices. And God says, okay. And so we make our own choices. Some call it free will. But essentially put, it is our responsibility. Every choice that we make is our responsibility. And so God gives us a choice, and oftentimes we choose to fall into temptation by giving ourselves over to our own sinful desires. The preacher Hayden Robinson once wrote, one of the most difficult responsibilities I've had as the president of Denver Seminary lies in reading my morning mail. A few months ago, I received a letter from a young man in the state prison in Texas. He was serving from 10 to 20 years for attempted rape. He was a Christian, and he asked me if I would send him a book that was not available for him in the prison. I gladly responded to his request. But his letter deeply disturbed me because the young man had been a student of mine when I taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. When he left the seminary, he left with great gift and great vision. He pastored two different churches, and both of them, humanly speaking, were successful congregations. In the second church, which I knew better, he demonstrated this gift to the people in that church, and the church was led to Christ as a result of his witness. He was a careful student of the Scriptures, and there were those in his congregation who testified that again and again, as he stood to speak, they could sense the power and the presence of God. He had a discipling ministry. He certainly left his thumbprint upon the men of his congregation. In fact, when his crime was discovered and he had admitted his guilt of attempted rape, the men in that congregation raised over $20,000 for his legal defense. And now he is a prisoner in the penitentiary of Texas. In one dark hour of temptation, he fell into the abyss. He ruined his reputation, destroyed his ministry, and left an ugly stain on the testimony of Christ in that community. When I read that letter and knew what had happened, I found myself, Robinson writes, wrestling with all kinds of questions and emotions. What happens in a person's life who does that? What went through his mind? What was it that caused him to turn his back on all that he had given his life to? I realized, Robinson writes, as I was asking those questions that I was not simply asking about him, but I was asking those questions about myself. I was asking about men and women who had graduated from this seminary, who in some act of disobedience had destroyed the ministry to which they had given themselves. What is it that causes someone to mortgage his ministry to pay the high price of sin? What is it that lures us to destruction? My friends, it's a question you and I face. You're a Christian. Temptation dogs your path and trips you at every step. The question you must face someplace in your life is, how does the tempter do his work? How does he come to us? How does he destroy us? I tell you what, he does so by appealing to our desires. 
That's what Satan has been doing since day one. He has been appealing to our desires. We are drawn away, verse 14 very clearly states, by our own desires, we are enticed by it. And that's what Satan has been doing, remember, in Genesis chapter 3? What he whispered into the ears of Adam and Eve. Don't you desire to know the knowledge that is between good and evil? Don't you desire to be like God? Notice how he whispers into the ear of Jacob, you should be the firstborn. That birthright is yours. Don't you desire it, Jacob? He whispers the same thing into David's ears. Look at her, David, Bathsheba. She is beautiful, isn't she? Don't you desire her? Don't you want her? And when the report came that Bathsheba was already a married woman, he comes again and he whispers, don't you really want her? Her husband is under your command. You can have him killed. You can have Uriah killed. You want her, don't you? Don't you desire her? He whispers into Judas's ears the same thing. Judas, you'll never be one of the co-rulers with Christ. He plans to die. You've spent three years with him. He plans to die. You will never be one of the rulers of Judea. At least earn some money for your three years of discipling with him. Don't you want some money in return? 30 silvers, 30 pieces of silver sound pretty good. And what does he whisper into your ears? Don't you want it? You know you want it. It looks so good. In fact, verse 15, James tells us the progression of sin. He tells us how Satan works. He tells us how we work. Verse 15 then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That desire is to have something or to be someone or to do something that is contrary to the will of God. You, you know, desire in its intrinsic form is not evil. In fact, the Bible tells us if we delight ourselves in the Lord, what does He do? He gives us the desires of our hearts. If that desire is consistent with the will of God, other religions try to get rid of desire, like Buddhism. Buddhism says that to reach the highest state of enlightenment, enlightenment nirvana, you must have no desire. It's hard to do, especially when God has created men and women with desires. Desires are not bad things if they are centered upon the will of God. But when you begin to desire things that is not consistent with what God has willed for your life, is contrary to what God has willed in your life, then it becomes an issue. Temptation is when our heart desires things and lusts after things which we're not supposed to have someone else's life, someone else's job, someone else's family, someone else's spouse, someone else's money. 
here's what the Bible tells us in verse 15. If we allow that desiring thought to percolate, to linger in our mind, it will one day give birth to sin. James is using the illustration of childbirth. It takes a fetus nine months to grow on average in the belly of a mother before it is birthed. In the same way, if you allow those lecherous, desiring thoughts in your mind to percolate one day, you will act on it. You know, a lot of people tell me, Pastor, don't worry, or you may be thinking this, don't worry, Pastor, it's only in my mind. I look at that beautiful woman, I lust after her, it's only in my mind, it doesn't affect her. I covet those things, I crave that thing, I can't have it, but just, just give me that moment when I can just daydream about having it. My friends, there's a danger in that, and here's the danger. The danger, if you allow that lustful thought, that desiring thought, which God has not willed for your life, to take residence and to percolate and to settle itself in your mind, one day you can't hold it back anymore. You will act on it. It gives birth to sin, the Bible says. When it does... The Bible tells us when it is full-grown, it brings forth death. Sin leads to death, but physically and spiritually. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is very clear. The wages of sin is death. And yes, that applies to a Christian. If a Christian continues to sin, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 is very clear. God can prematurely take the life of a believer so that that believer will not continue to sin more. For the non-believer, it's both spiritual death and physical death. When sin is full-grown, when it matures, when it reaches its climax, it is death. It is ugly. And it all begins when you harbor those desiring things in your mind. I don't know if you've read this week or followed the news. Some of you know his name, some of you don't, about the fall of the media mogul, Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein is uh, one of the big names associated with winning Oscars. He is uh, one of the big shots in Hollywood. And yet within these past few days, his life literally has collapsed because of accusations that came uh, from an article in the newspaper where more than 20 women have accused Harvey of rape, sexual harassment, just simply inappropriate actions. He himself has admitted it. His life, if you're familiar with what's happening to him, is completely broken. His family has left him. All of his friends have abandoned him. He begged for people's endorsement. None would give him any. And just this morning, as I read the news, the Academy of Motion Pictures has expelled him from their membership. He has hit rock bottom for a man who was very powerful. And everyone was shocked. 
Everyone was shocked. How in the world could this man, who by all accounts, I don't know him, but from all accounts, was just a really fun-loving artist, a great man, most have lauded him in their Oscar speeches. How was he capable to do something like this? They were all shocked and disgusted. And if you read the story, I wonder how many of you thought, oh, man, I would never do something like he did. This is shocking, disgusting. He's a pig of a man. My friends, let me tell you something. You shouldn't be shocked by his actions because every single man in this congregation this morning is capable of doing what Harvey Weinstein did. Every woman this morning is capable of doing something similar. Why? Because of sin. In our sin nature, when we allow desires and lust of our hearts to percolate and take residence in our mind, one day you cannot control yourself and you will act on it. Every person is capable. That day and that moment when you claim to yourself that you will never fall into that sin, be very careful. Because soon after, the roaring lion, the tempter himself, has gotten you. You've let your guard down. You who think you are invincible most likely will fall into that sin. Desire leads to sin. Sin leads to death. What a stark contrast to life in verse 12. The Bible says, if you reject sin's temptation... You will be blessed with the crown of life. You will have life in complete contrast to the death that sin brings. I've often heard it said, especially amongst young people, I just want to enjoy life. I just want to taste the real world. I just want to do the fun things of this life. Come on, pastor. Don't be such a prude. Don't suck out all the joy. My friends, I'm not here to tell you you can't do it. I'm here to tell you it's your decision, it's your choice, but you are responsible for that choice. But understand that the world's version of fun leads to death, spiritual or physically. Drugs, alcohol, you can go through all the vices. I don't need to tell you. The world's definition of fun leads to death. That which God offers for a blessed life is what leads to life. Never forget, sin always leads to death. I read an interesting article uh, two days ago about a very interesting flight. Uh, two days ago was Friday the 13th, and for some it sparks dread uh, because the superstitious person believes that Friday the 13th is a bad day. And for many people, the number 666 is associated with the devil based on the book of Revelation. Uh, for us as believers, 666 is only but a number. 
Now, for 11 years, some passengers on Friday the 13th have flown Finnish Airway Flight 666, which takes you from Copenhagen, Denmark, to Helsinki, Finland. For those of you who don't know, Helsinki has the airport abbreviation H-E-L. So on Friday the 13th, Flight 666 flies to hell. It's interesting, two days ago, on Friday the 13th, the airline tweeted that the flight has landed safely in hell. But they also announced that it would be the last time a flight of that number would fly on Friday the 13th. When asked by the media why, the company said they were retiring the 666 flight number because as the airline was growing, they had to add more numbers. And so in that tweet, it says, Today was the last time Finnair AY666 flied on Friday the 13th. Flight 666 from Copenhagen to Helsinki will become Flight 954. In 11 years, we've flown 666 to hell 21 times on Friday the 13th. Farewell. But don't worry, remember, we still have a flight from Singapore to hell. We have a flight from Sin to hell. <laughs> S-I-N is the code, as you know, for the Singapore airport. I'd love for you one day, if any of you fly that route, please send me a copy of your boarding pass. You are flying from sin to hell. It's a great picture exactly of what verse 15 is talking about. Sin brings forth death. The Bible is very clear. Now, in contrast to this temptation, how does God operate? Look at verse 16 to 18. James writes, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. James goes on to contrast the temptation of one's sinful desire with that which comes from God. If temptation leads to death, then what is it that comes from God? And the Bible tells us very clearly what comes from God is every good and perfect gift. In that context, for those thinking about walking away from God, thinking that they'll get a better life. They'll be less persecuted. They won't go through so much trouble. James makes it abundantly clear that every good and every perfect thing comes from God. So if you leave God, you leave the one who dispenses every good and perfect gift. He's putting a contrast, number three, if you're taking notes. The contrast to temptation, number three, is God's perfect goodness. The contrast to temptation, God's perfect goodness. And how does God dispense His perfect goodness? James uses an illustration that notes that God, while He created the variances of the different light sources of this world, the, the brighter sunlight versus the, the lesser moonlight, 
how he deals with his children does not vary. That means God shows no favoritism. There are no levels of God's goodness. God is perfectly good, and His perfect goodness is what drives His decision in allowing you to go through certain things. It is His perfect goodness that drives what He gives you. He knows what's best for you. He knows when He doesn't give you something, it is still marked by His perfect goodness. That's the truth. There are a lot of men and women who believe that God shows favoritism. Oh, God always blesses you, pastor. He likes you. And if I can use wrong grammar, he's gooder to you than he is to me. That's what a lot of people think. God doesn't like me as much because I'm not a pastor. God doesn't like me as much because I'm not serving him. God doesn't like me as much because I'm not doing my devotions. We've got this convoluted notion of placing how we operate into how God operates James says it very clearly, there is no variance when he dispenses every good and every perfect gift. It's wonderful, isn't it? That every child of God is perfectly loved by him, no favoritism, and that what he dispenses based on his goodness is based on his perfect goodness just perfect for you. It's a tough lesson, I know, to learn that God is good. In Randy Hoyt's article, Learning God is Good, he writes this, which should have been a joyous occasion turned into a nightmare of grief. As Randy watched helplessly as his wife, Chris, went into the hospital for an emergency cesarean operation, when she was only five months pregnant. The bleeding was tremendous. Chris required 30 units of blood. As the doctor battled to save her life, Randy cried out to God, God, what do you want? I know you can heal her. Why don't you? God didn't heal her. Chris, and then 16 days later, their prematurely born daughter, Grace, lost their struggle for life. Randy was left as a single father of six children. He asked, what about our plans, God? Who will teach the children? Who will guide them? Who will love them like their mother? Randy would soon find out how God displays his goodness. A program was started which became known as Help Bring Hope to the Hoyt Kids. Over the next six months, hundreds of people worked, sent money, donated meals and supplies, and poured love into Randy's family. Randy received more than 500 letters, emails, and cards from people who said they were praying for us. At the end of the six months, the medical bills were all paid, the mortgage had been paid on his house, and Randy was back at work. God did not save his wife, but God's love was ministered to Randy and his children in deeply profound ways after his wife Chris's death. The pain of Chris's and Grace's death, of course, remained. And yet, when he would start to sink into despair, Randy could imagine the two of them in heaven together, fully alive, healthy, and full of joy. He could feel the Holy Spirit as if saying to him, see her as she is now. 
she is alive. Reflecting upon his experience, Randy says, I asked God for the life of my wife. I received instead a lesson on the nature of God. God is good. Armed with that knowledge, I have no fear for today or the future. God will always be enough for any situation. My friends, the key to knowing that God is good is simply to know Him because He's always good. The very nature of who God is is that He is a good God. And His goodness affects every single decision He makes about your life. So therefore, when God tells us certain things in the Scriptures for what we are to do, it is for our good. When God allows certain things to happen in our lives, and it is His will, it is for our good. And when you can think that a good God who loves to dispense every perfect gift from above, every good gift, then you can begin to understand the goodness of God and draw closer to Him to receive that which is good for you. One of my favorite stories is about a lady going on an airplane trip. And she went on her airplane trip, she went to a little store there in the airport, bought herself a magazine and a package of four cookies. And she waited for her flight, she sat down, and it was a small little airport. It was crowded, and so uh, strangers had to share tables and chairs. So she began to read her magazine, and she heard the distinct sound of the unwrapping of the four cookies. And so she lowered down her magazine, and to her surprise, she looked over and saw that the man sitting next to her in that little airport was helping himself to one of her cookies. And she thought, what nerve? Who does he think he is? She was so shocked she couldn't say anything, but she wanted to say, these are my cookies. And so she reached over and she took one of the cookies and she ate it as if daring him to take another one because these are hers. And so she went back to reading her magazine. And soon she again heard the rustling sound of him unpacking the cookies in that cellophane. And to her surprise, he was eating another one of her cookies. And now she noticed there's only one left. And she was going to eat that cookie. She had bought it. In fact, to her surprise, he kind of nudged it in her direction. What's wrong with this man, she thought. And so she ate that fourth cookie. She got up in disgust and it was about the time her flight was taking off, and so she walked to the gate, and she went to take out her ticket from her purse. She saw that there was a package of four cookies in her purse. She had been eating his cookies all along. I like the story because this is a picture of how we treat God. You know, you know how it is. We're always so protective of what is ours. We don't get many good things in life, so the good things that happen to us, the good things that we have, they're mine. Mine. I've worked hard for these good things. These are mine. 
These are mine. You shouldn't touch it. That's the game we play. Can you imagine? It must be a wonderment to God why we play that game. In fact, he's saying, you want more? I've given it all to you. But everyone in this world is playing that game. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And God is saying, take it. Every good and every perfect gift comes where? From, comes from above. Take it. And if you don't believe that, then you're going to keep guarding that which you have and never understanding that God wants to give you more. The best evidence of God's goodness to His children is through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, who through Him we have eternal life, who through Him we have salvation. It was very clear in the mind of James that we who do not deserve anything have been given the greatest gift of God through His grace, the gift of His Son. Look at verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. By His own will, God's own volitional decision to give us salvation and eternal life through His very own Son without a sense of obligation. But He simply did it because He's a good God. And His perfect goodness desires that His children will have the best. And the only way for His children to have the best is for Jesus' own Son to die on our behalf. Did you get that? The only way for us to receive the best in life, eternity spent with Him, the only way was for Him to give up of His own Son, He Himself, so that we can receive the best. Don't you ever doubt that God is good in your life because then you will not understand who God is. His own will. I've got that circled in my Bible. His volitional decision to want to give me His best required the sacrifice of His Son. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, tells a story about billions of people seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back, while some crowded the front, raising angry voices. And what were they angry about? They were exclaiming, how can God judge us? How can He know about suffering? Snapped one woman, ripping a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, tortures, death. Other sufferers expressed their complaint against God for the evil and suffering He had permitted. What did God know of weeping and hunger and hatred? God leads a sheltered life in heaven, they said. Some, the victims of Hiroshima. Some others born deformed. Others having been murdered each sent forth a representative from their life experience. They concluded that before God had the right to judge them, He should be sentenced to live on earth as a man to endure the suffering they had endured. Then they pronounced the sentence on Him. Let our judge, let Him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of His birth be doubted. 
Let his close friends betray him. Let him face false charges. Let a prejudiced jury try him and a cowardly judge convict him. Let him be tortured. Let him be utterly alone. Then let him be bloodied and forsaken and let him die. The room grew silent after the sentence against God had been pronounced. No one moved, and a weight fell on each face. Jesus Christ died on the cross. God Himself died so that we may receive the best in life. Jesus Christ died so that we, the Bible says in verse 18, may be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The Greek for first fruits is a parquet, is the idea of first honor, the first of its type, meaning a person who excels over all the same type of people. Jesus Christ died so that you and I can live a better life. Jesus Christ died so that you and I will live a life that is not like the world. We will be better than the world. And yet so many of us don't understand that. So many of us are so content to simply live like the world. I don't want to reject sin's temptation because I want to have it good. Jesus Christ died so that you can proclaim with your life, shouting louder than words, that you know the truth, that you are a child of God. To live a life holy and pleasing, He died so that you could be a better person. Are you? So that you can be the first fruits of His creation, of His creatures. We've talked about a lot of theological concepts. It's been pretty deep, I know. Let me boil it down to you. It's real simple. It's real simple. It boils down to this boils down to a choice. Do you choose to reject sin's temptations, which leads to death, or do you choose to enjoy the good things God has prepared for those who follow Him? Are you willing to live a life where your life's choices speak louder than words in your rejection of sin's temptation to show the world that God has offered something better. That I've chosen the better things of God, the eternal goodness that will come in glory versus the temporary unsatisfying fulfillment of our sinful desires. The world is looking for the choice that you're going to make. A young boy went to the local store with his mother. The shop owner, a kind man, after they had paid, took a large jar of candy and came up to the little boy and invited him to help himself to a handful of candy. Uncharacteristically, uh, the little boy held back. He didn't take, and he was a bit shy. So the store owner used his hands and took out a whole handful of candy for him and he unloaded it on that kid's arms. 
When outside, the boy's mother asked him why he'd suddenly been so shy. You're not this shy. When offered candy, you'd get it. Why wouldn't you take a handful of candy when offered? And with, with a mischievous smile, the boy replied to his mother, because mom, his hands are much bigger than mine. His hands are much bigger than mine. I like that. Here we are, trying to grab at the good things of life with our little hands, forgetting that God's hands are substantially bigger than ours. And He is waiting and wanting to unload His goodness and blessings upon us, waiting for us to simply accept it. But so many of us are so content about what we think is good for us versus what God knows is best for us. So remember, His hands are substantially bigger than ours to dispense His goodness and blessings in our life. If only we'll reject sin's temptation and to accept His goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may it be that we are challenged to live our lives to accept what is good for us through a good God versus accepting what we think is good for us. Help us to proclaim you with our lives by expressing clearly that we reject Sim's temptation through our own sinful desires, but that we desire the good and perfect gifts of God as we follow in obedience to Him. The choice is ours, Lord. Help us to make the right one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.